he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, and from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I, never eat, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Thank you, Taylor. Is that last phrase? Yeah, I see you. <laughs> you you brought you told me you were bringing her. Good on you. By the way, since I've interrupted my thought, no, you're okay. I, I really need to say goodbye to a beloved friend. Estelle is leaving us. And I can't talk her out of it. She is moving. She sold her house and she's moving and she will be a part. Doug Hambrick, my good friend, is a lucky fellow to be gaining a church member like you. And Estelle, we are sad to see you go. We understand the circumstances and, and we love you and we're going to meet. Can, can we say goodbye with a round of applause? You're going to make me cry. Does that last phrase rattle you just a little bit? I'll never eat meat again. Some of you would have a fit. You do understand that that also includes bacon, right? Some of you would not survive without bacon. I mean, you wrap your Twinkies in bacon and, and, and fry them. It just... Understand, uh, Jonathan said, go easy on us this morning. <laughs> the last few weeks have been pretty tough because we've been in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a very practical book, but a very pointed book. And so I, I knew what I was getting into when I started this. And I'm, I'm going to do my best to hold forth and finish uh, our series on the book of 1 Corinthians. But... In order to understand what chapter, what, what chapter am I in? What this chapter is about, verses 1 through 13, and finished with that verse saying, I won't eat meat again. 
Last week we talked about, and in the past couple of weeks, we've talked about sexual issues and people sort of, you know, hunker down when the preacher starts talking about sexual issues. But you have to understand that the city of Corinth was a city of great commerce, but because it was a financial center and it was a center of shipping, it was also a religious center and it was a city of prostitution, of idolatry, and those two subjects are handled very heavily. That is, there's a lot to say about it in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I can't preach it without dealing with those subjects. But you have to understand the context of, of what is being said here. It is specifically, according to verse 1, it is specifically having to do with meat offered to idols. Now, understand that in the city of, of Corinth, there were idol temples everywhere. And people would go to the idol temples. I've already told you, it's, it's strange to us. It's ungodly. There were idol prostitutes in those, in those temples. And that's why there's so much in the book about sexual issues. There, there was also feasting. There would be meat that was sacrificed to the idol. And then there would be a feast of the meat that was not burned. And people would come to the idol temple and have a feast there. And that feast, sort of like going to, uh, uh, you know, some people go to the casinos and eat because it's cheap to eat in the casino. Well, that's a lesson for another day. But that's the way it was in the temples. You could go get cheap meat in the temple because it had been offered to the idol and they could put on a feast and you could eat cheap in the idol temple. The issue is the meat has been offered to an idol and you're sitting there in an idol temple. Now the people were accustomed to that. But now, all of a sudden, they've trusted the Lord. They're members of the First Baptist Church of Corinth. Go ahead and smile, it's okay. And what, what kind of testimony does that give? Now, we understand that that meat that was offered to idols was available in three ways. It was available in the meat market. And it was cheaper than Walmart. I mean, it was cheap meat. There was nothing wrong with the meat except that it had been offered to an idol. But it was sold cheaply in the market. You could get it there. You might go to someone's home and you might be offered meat. And they might actually say to you, oh, well, this is, I got a bargain on this because it, this is the idol meat. This is the meat that was offered in the temple and then put in the market. Or, as I said, you could go to the temple itself and you could eat the feast of the idol. Now, by the way, through the book, we're going to talk about this meat offered to idols over several chapters. And I can give you the bottom line. Paul said, if, if you buy it in the market, it's just meat. Food is food. Unless somebody says something to you. 
If you go to someone's house and the meat is offered, take whatever you're offered and eat it. Food is food. It makes no difference unless the person says, oh, by the way, this is meat offered to an idol. And then you have to decide, is their conscience going to be offended? Are they going to think that you revere the idol because you're eating the meat? It's not your conscience that's at danger, in danger at that point. It's theirs. But if you're seen in the meat, uh, in the idol temple, he concludes at the end of this section. I'm preaching two Sundays away, what I'm going to preach on that day, but here it is. Don't go to the idol temple because there are people who will think you're worshiping the idol. Now that's, that's sort of the bottom line. But the principles that we're talking about in this chapter, we're talking about when my freedom destroys your faith from chapter 8 verses 1 through 13. We are given great freedom. We are set free from the law. Those requirements of the Old Testament of what we can eat and not eat are done away in Christ. He fulfilled the law and we are given freedom. But there are circumstances where the exercise of our freedom may destroy someone else's faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice several things from this passage. First of all, he says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That, that is an important principle. It's dangerous. He talks about we all have this knowledge. But then he says there are other people that don't have the knowledge. But he said that's, it's a warning. And, and I'll listen carefully when Taylor read, when you think you know something, you better be careful because you don't know everything. That's, that's a paraphrase of what she read. You think you know something, but be careful because you don't know everything. And the danger is that we will be proud of our knowledge. I'm pulling my phone out of the pocket, not because I'm getting a phone call. I just want to get this quote right. One of my favorite movie quotes is from Elwood P. Dowd. How many of you know who El El the character Elwood P. Dowd was? Of course, my wife knows. I've hounded her with this, but... Uh, how many of you have ever seen, uh, now, Corey, your generation, just forget it. You guys have never, how many of you have ever seen the Jimmy Stewart movie, Harvey? Okay, a few, you just told your age. One of my favorite quotes from, in, in movies in general is from the, from the Jimmy Stewart character. Harvey, by the way, is a seven foot tall rabbit who is a figment of imagination. He's, uh, anyway. Elwood P. Dowd somewhere in the movie says, In this world, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. For years, I was smart. I recommend pleasant. That's huge. You say, well, that's a secular quote. Yeah, but it's exactly what Paul said to the church at Corinth. Knowledge makes you proud. It puffs you up. Be careful about being proud of your knowledge and having no concern for those who don't understand the things that you understand. Now, 
I have to tell you, to, to get this, you, we have to have the right context. It's, the context is concerning food offered to idols. That is specifically, and I told you there are three ways that that food might be available. This is not about offending people. See, here's the thing. It is that someone who is a new convert, someone who's been saved out of idolatry, they now see you, a member of First Baptist Church at Corinth, sitting in the idol temple. That's verse 11, by the way, in case you think I'm making that up. That's verse 11. Actually seeing you eating the, the meat offered to idols, eating the feast inside the idol temple. What is that person who's just saved out of idolatry, what happens to their faith? What happens to their commitment when they see you in the idol temple the way they were? And the danger is apostasy. And understand, the context of this passage is apostasy. It's not just having your feelings hurt. I've heard this passage taken out of context and butchered by every legalist that ever walked. You will obey my, my rules because if you don't, I will be offended and you're not supposed to offend your brother. That's not what the Bible says. It's not an excuse for legalism. It's not an excuse for maintaining our traditions. It's talking about apostasy. Thank you for the amen, Don. Because what it means is, that guy may be so offended, he just walks away from the church. He walks away from Christ. He goes back to the idol temple. That's what apostasy means. It means going back to your old way of life and forsaking your faith. Do not think that this passage, this whole chapter, talks about somebody who is a Pharisee, who has all kinds of rules, and I'm going to be offended if you don't follow my rules. Did you ever wonder why Jesus didn't make His disciples wash their hands before they ate? My mother would turn over in her grave if I didn't wash my hands before I ate. It's because the Pharisees made that a requirement for righteousness before God. And Don, Jesus didn't care if He offended the Pharisees. And in our day, I'm afraid we've got a lot of Pharisees who've made all kinds of rules of religion. And if you break their rules, it doesn't matter whether it's biblical or not. If you break their rules, they're offended. Jesus would have purposefully broken their rules to teach them real righteousness rather than legalism. How, how can you say that, preacher? Because He did it. He healed on the Sabbath day continually. He could have healed six other days of the week. And in fact, that's what the Pharisees said for Him to do. And told the people, come and be healed on some other day besides the Sabbath day. Jesus chose to heal on the Sabbath day. 
This is not, this whole chapter is not about your rules and your traditions and you're going to offend me if you do this and break my rules and, and break our traditions. No, it's about destroying somebody's faith. Don't take a young Christian. We're talking about the weak, not the righteous. We're talking about offending and in fact the word offend is a very weak translation of the word. The word that is used means a trap. In fact, it was used for the trigger of the trap. Don't you be the trigger that traps a weaker brother when my freedom destroys your faith. Understand, we need to have the right context. It's apostasy. We also need to have right knowledge. Now, I want, I want you to get this. Paul, in writing this, says, you're proud of your knowledge. But he doesn't skip over what that knowledge ought to be. Alice, he tells them, this is what you're supposed to know. Just in case you're reading this and you haven't got this yet, here's what you're supposed to know. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. An idol is nothing. In the Old Testament, they're called scarecrows and a pumpkin patch. They're nothing. They have no breath. They have no brain. They have no heart. I'm not talking about the Wizard of Oz. But your mind went there, didn't it? They're a scarecrow. They have no real existence. By the way, in the Old Testament, he says very clearly, don't be afraid of them. I'm preaching to my wife right now. She hates it when we go into one of those old Catholic churches and they've got all the gargoyles and everything and, and it just makes her skin crawl. And I, I have to say, the Bible says, don't be afraid of them. They can't do anything. They can't do evil and they can't do good. They are nothing. Understand that. An idol is nothing. He has no real existence. And there is no God but one. One and one only. One God. One way to God. Jesus Christ. For although there, may, there are many so-called gods or heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us and in truth there is one God the Father from whom all things and for whom we are exist. He is the Creator God, Almighty God. Um, I was thinking this week, because I'm looking ahead, we're going to be talking about the gift of languages. And Is it sometimes more powerful to say something in another language? I think it is, because I still think about praying in Swahili, and we prayed, Mungu Mwenyenzi. And those words are just so powerful. God, all-powerful, the one and only God. That's who we pray to. That's who we worship. He created all things by the word of His mouth. He spoke and it all came into existence. And He holds it together in the same way. By His power, all things hold together. And we live for Him. 
for whom we exist. We were created for Him, not for idols, not for ourselves. We were created for Him. There is one God and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Did you ever think about the fact that the Father was involved in creation? And that the Son, Jesus Christ, was involved in creation. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There is right knowledge. You need to understand there is one God. Creator God. And He loved you. He loved you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, to die for your sins. There is one God and one Lord, and there is only one way of salvation. And Jesus is the way. You can only reach the Father through the Son by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. You say, why are you saying that to a bunch of people that are already saved? Because there are people here who are not saved. There are people here who do not have that knowledge. You must know who Jesus is. You must believe who He said that He is. And you must call on Him in faith or you are lost, eternally lost. I need you to know that this morning. If you don't hear anything else I say, if you have never called on Christ for salvation, today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today. One God, one Lord, Savior of all who will call on Him. Well, we need to also have the right attitude, the right context, the right knowledge. We need to have the right attitude. This knowledge, because we know that an idol is nothing. We can be real proud. And if we're not careful, Carol will we'll do things because we know that we have the freedom and that an idol is nothing. We will do things that will hurt someone else. We need to understand this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Builds up. By the way, I told you that I've heard this passage used for all kinds of rules and regulations, you know, things to eat, things to drink, things, you know, what you wear. We've got all kinds of rules, and we've tried to make this passage belong to those rules and substantiate our rules, and that's taking the verses and the passage totally out of context. Let me give you proper context and, and this is, it's a little hard to think about. When's the last time you went to an idol temple and ate meat sacrificed to idols? I mean, really. But you know what, Nancy? I, I, we were in a Buddhist nation, and I saw missionaries there go into a Buddhist temple. It was a, an active Buddhist temple, but it was also a historical monument, and it was there for tourists. And I saw one of the missionaries walking the prayer circle, spinning the prayer wheels as he walked by. Now, Susan, he didn't mean anything by that. It's just, if, if you walk by 
a prayer wheel, Don, you, you know, you, you see a thing, big tall thing, six feet tall, and it's up there about shoulder level. You see all the people walking by spinning it. You might be tempted to spin that prayer wheel when you go by. You know what you just did? There's some converted Buddhist watching you and you just confirm to them that that prayer wheel is how you pray to God. Think about that. You may think you had the freedom and what you just did meant nothing. By the way, Wanda, I, I, that's why I don't like that song, little, little Prayer Wheel Turning. Where in the world is that in the Bible? Well, I saw it in Mongolia. I saw prayer wheels. And I won't be spending any prayer wheels. Jesus paved the way. I don't have to use a prayer wheel to pray to anybody. I went to Mexico City. And I was broken hearted when I saw the people crawling up the street to the Church of the Virgin of Guadalupe. By the way, that's a pagan religion. That's not even Catholicism. She was an Indian goddess that the Catholics made the Virgin, a reincarnation of the Virgin Mary. You explain that to me. Where's that in the Bible? And people will crawl on their knees on the rough pavement for a mile. To earn the right to be heard by the Virgin of Guadalupe and have prayers answered. And Brenda, I had to hold her back. She wanted to go help them up. Get up. You don't have to do this, Brenda. You'll, they'll knock you down. And you know what we did? We left there and we went and there were all these neat tourist items. And I bought a carving of the Last Supper. You say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a carving of the Last Supper. Gerardo Carrion ripped me up one side and down the other for buying something at the idol temple. I never even considered it. What am I doing? I'm saying that that is something. And somebody who's weak in the faith can stumble over that. If you think about it, there are a lot of examples of that where, and, and again, we're not talking about offending some Pharisee. We're talking about a weaker brother who's looking on it. And I'm not talking about Gerardo, because what Gerardo was doing is trying to teach me a principle. There are others who will see you do that, and they think that that is a good thing to do. You have to be careful about that, because you can send someone back. You need to operate out of love to keep from causing someone to turn back in their faith. Listen, we need to be careful about how smart we are. I have a lot of friends who love to debate. But I would submit to you that no one was ever debated or argued into the kingdom of God. And our arrogance may actually keep people from being saved. What am I saying? Love people. Love people. Love God. And love people. And love people more than you love knowledge. I think it's great to study the Bible. And to know about the Bible. 
But my friend, something is wrong if your knowledge of the Bible doesn't lead you to love people and to treat them lovingly and gently and build them up. Hard-hearted Christians are the enemy of the gospel. Hard-headed Christians are the enemy of the gospel. Well, the second thing I want you to think about is that a weak conscience is easily defiled. Now, that's quoting verse 7. A weak conscience is easily defiled. You're actually making the conscience dirty again by turning them away from real faith. Now, he says that not, not all have this knowledge. However, not all possess the, this knowledge. Not everybody understands that an idol is nothing and that an idol temple is worthless. They think it is something. They're so soon out of idolatry that it still means something to them. It, that means their past still troubles them. By the way, we, we need to understand when we have someone who's saved who comes into our church as a young Christian, you need not expect them to act like they've been a Christian all their life. You need to understand they are going to come with baggage. And, and it's, to me, it's like when Lazarus came out of the tomb, Jesus raised him from the dead, and then He said to the people around Him, Loose him and let him go. That means unwrap him from the grave clothes. People come into our services and get saved. It is Jesus who saves them and gives them life. But it's up to you and me to help unwrap them from the baggage they brought in from their life before they were saved. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. That's verse 7 in the NIV. That's a more understandable explanation of this. And that's what I'm talking about. Not everybody has this knowledge. And for some of them, their past still plagues them. By the way, every one of us probably has a bit of baggage. See some heads nodding. I didn't get many shouts of amen. But it's the truth, isn't it? In fact, friend, no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, you're probably still carrying some baggage. And that's what church is all about. That's what preaching is all about. That's what our study groups are all about. To unwrap some of those grave clothes that we're still wrapped in. Listen, if you're coming to God today with baggage, He wants to relieve you of the baggage. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to sanctify you. He wants to take away the guilt and the shame. Let Him do it. Let Him do it. Then, because of their past, their past that plagues them, their conscience is weak. That's what it says again in verse 7. Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. I've already said to you, we need to remember that new believers may come to us with a lot of baggage from their past. And we need to love that weaker believer. 
We don't need to pound them. We need to love them, to teach them, to encourage them. We need more mercy. We need fewer prophets and more with the gift of mercy and the gift of encouragement to love even those carrying baggage from their past. Then number three, exercising our rights may trap a new believer. I specifically used that word trap because the word scandalizo, we, we get it. Uh, we would anglicize that, turn it into English, and say you're going to scandalize someone. But the literal meaning of the word in the Greek language in that day was to set a trap to trip them up. And I told you that, in fact, the word referred to the trigger and the trap. But the idea is if we're not careful, we will trap someone and cause them to walk away from the faith. And it's talking about the weaker believer. It's, it should not be talking about somebody who's walked with the Lord for 40 years. It should not be talking about a pastor or a, or a teacher in the church. It's, it's talking about a new believer and that we actually, by exercising those things, that we are indeed free to do. But by doing that, we trap someone who's new and cause them to apostatize. Now, he makes it clear. Food, this is, this is real theological. You got this? Food is just food. Bacon is just food. Chocolate cookies. Brownies. Brownies with hot fudge and ice cream. You know what my week, you know what my baggage is, right? It's just food. Now, it may be a sin against Weight Watchers to eat that. But unless you are using food as an idol, by the way, some people do, you realize that? Unless you're using food as self-medication, food is just food. Food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now, some of us would not agree with that. We're no worse if we do not eat. You're not getting it, are you? We got it? Okay. No better if we do. Most of us would say, I'll be a lot better. In fact, it's a southernism. You'd feel better if you just eat something, right? It's not a spiritual thing. It doesn't earn something from God, neither does it turn God away. It's just food. The trouble is, not everybody understands that. Our freedom may lead them to fail. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. That's chapter 8, verse 9, and that should say NIV. Our freedom. It's just food. But what, Jonathan, what if they see me eating in the idol temple? I mean, I've, I didn't just buy it in the market. Man, I went in and I sat down while it was still hot. I don't want it left over. I want it fresh. 
And that idol temple, Susan, is nothing. It's nothing. Idol's nothing. The temple's nothing. So I'm just going to go in there, Catherine, sit down and eat while the food's still hot. I'm free to do that. I have the freedom in the Lord to do that. Alicia, if somebody who's straight out of idolatry sees me do that, what does that do to their faith? And I need to be careful that our freedom does not lead them to fail. In fact, the bolder we are, the greater our danger to them. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, get this, eating in an idol's temple. I thought I said it was verse 11. It's verse 10. Eating in an idol's temple. That's pretty brazen. It's one thing to buy it in the market. It's another thing to go to somebody's house and they serve it to me. This is marching right into the temple, sitting down at the table and eating in the idol's temple. Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And see, the difference is they think it is something. They think they're honoring the idol when they eat that meat. The bolder we are, the more likely we are to cause them to fall. Do not be the catalyst of somebody else's downfall. Be careful how you exercise your freedom around new believers. Because causing a new believer, I think this is number four, causing a new believer to fail is a sin against Christ. It, our knowledge may destroy one for whom Christ died. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Get this. That is somebody for whom Christ died. And yet we are chasing them away. We've set a trap for them that they will fail in their faith. That's a sin against the weak brother. When you sin against them in this way, that's a sin against them. Not only is it a sin against our weak brother, it's a sin against Christ. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. We need to be careful of that. Yeah, I know I got to moving too fast for you to fill in the blanks, didn't I? Back up. This is a sin against our weak brother. Our knowledge may destroy one for whom Christ died. This is a sin against our weak brother. And then this is a sin against Christ. The one before. I can't back up that far. A weak conscience is easily defiled, causing a new believer to fail is a sin against Christ. That's the main point. Here's, here's where it comes down. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, remember we're talking about the weaker brother, that's the context, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Church members, listen to me. This is not what most people interpret it to be. It's not that we've set this rules and if you don't obey our rules, we're offended. We're talking about apostasy. We need to understand though that when new Christians come to us, somebody comes and, and, and they're saved, we need to be patient with them. 
We need to be loving. We need to be encouraging. We need to help them unwrap that baggage. Don't misuse this passage as an excuse for making people obey your rules. Jesus was not a legalist. He offended the legalist every chance he got. That's not what this passage is about. To those of you who may be struggling with your faith in God. And the faith that you have now learned. Listen to me. Don't let anyone keep you out of heaven. There are people who would tell you not to be here today. There are people who would tell you not to listen to the word of God. They'll do everything they can to put question marks in your mind. About the word of God. And about who Jesus is. Listen to me. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the God who loved you and wants to save you. He is the only way to heaven. Used to be when I preached revivals, we majored on having invitations. And I would be so bold as to say, if there's somebody sitting between you and the aisle and you need to get out, walk the aisle and get saved you just shove them out of the way that's not what I'm talking about so much this morning as it is don't let anybody discourage you for coming to faith in Jesus Christ there may be somebody watching the live stream right now you've never trusted Christ as your Savior You've got all kinds of excuses why you've not done that. And there may be someone who's been very active in keeping you from being saved. In this moment, having heard who Jesus is, that He loves you and that He died for you, don't let anyone stand in your way. Get on your knees, wherever you are, right now. Confess to God, I'm lost, I've sinned, and ask Jesus Christ to save you, to cleanse you from sin. Make that commitment to Christ right now.